I think this is like the perfect Instagram product. Like yeah, everybody <laughs> looks at van life on Instagram and is like, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. That is so glamorous. I want to be free until they do it. Even though it's actually horrible. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. horrible. It's, it's horrible. horrible. It's awful. No, it's not. You sleep where you drive. It smells in okay. there. Okay. Hey there, I'm Jory Monroe, and this is Another Bite, where we rewatch the latest and greatest pitches from Shark Tank and some of the not-so-great pitches. Joining me today are Senior VP of Marketing at HubSpot, John Dick, and Managing Editor on HubSpot's brand social media team, Leslie Green. Hello. Hey, y'all. Today, we're taking it to the great outdoors with some fantastic tiny homes, a blanket that's repellent of debris, wine, and sharks. But first, we have a product that seems like a good deal overall. But first, a quick word from today's lucky sponsor. Oh, who is she? Well, so first up in the tank, we have Muff Waiters, which is the first ever bib to keep your drinks close while working outdoors, but also being the life of the party. And let me just tell you, I thought this walkout was iconic. We had an axe-wielding, beer-cracking lumberjack next to a man in a suit, and nothing says country mouse meets city mouse like that combo. So we had Taylor Earl Knees and Garrett Buddy Lamp. And the problem they're really trying to solve is that basically these are overalls with pockets to stash away and hold your different beer cans in. So it's an insulated six-pack cooler on your chest. My back could never. But folks, it also comes with a plethora of pockets big enough to hold whole wine bottles and it comes with a built-in bottle opener and attachable cup holder. Muffleaders came to us asking $25,000 for a 25% stake in their business, which is a 100K valuation. And their goal is to make sure that every blue collar man can wear these so they can go to work and crack some beers. So Leslie, John, what did we think of this pitch? Uh, okay. First of all, you got you got to admire these guys because uh, they're rolling in drinking beer on Shark Tank. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if that was the first for Shark Tank. Uh, I have never seen another episode where people rolled out actually drinking beers. Uh, and the vibe they gave off was very positive. And I also just love the pure ingenuity. Uh, he basically just was at a tailgate and was like, I cannot believe... I have to carry this six pack around and I can't find a place to put it on my body. So I got to like admire the ingenuity. I think it really solves a problem for a whole section of people in the world. Yeah. I mean, I want to see the original sketch. Like they said, there's an original sketch that he drew like the night of. I want to see that. But I agree. I think just the the problem that it solved is your hands getting cold at a football game and not being able to carry everything You need your hands to stay warm or you're in for a bad evening. I think the... The sharks were at first really charmed by the walkout. You know, like they they each got a beer. Everyone was relaxing together. Um, what was interesting is it seemed that I don't know if it was because this was like the the beer started to kind of go to our founders' heads, but uh, they definitely started to like forget the questions that were being asked of them. So I was like, interesting tactic. Like it's it's relatable, but at the same time. Potentially not the best business move uh, to bring out some alcohol. <laughs> yeah, that was that was my quote of the episode. Him just being like, uh, "What's the question?" <laughs> I called the guy back, um, and um, basically, I don't know what happened to the other question. What was that question again? 
Drink the Earl. Drink the Earl. Yeah, I love though that he just like rolled with it. Like he was like, I don't know what you're asking, but we're still here and we're just gonna keep going. Like I, it takes a lot of like courage to not try to fake your way out of a situation, try to pretend you know what they asked. But I think that's so authentic to both of the entrepreneurs, Taylor and Garrett. Like it just felt like them. I think my quote of the episode was actually not a quote at all. It was just action speaking louder than words and him chopping wood right in the beginning. Like the audacity to just roll. Like, I feel like if I was on national television and I tried to swing an axe, like I would definitely miss. Like I'd take a toe off or something. It would be horrible and it would become one of the most famous bloopers in uh, Shark Tank history, I I would say, is what would happen to me. But he nailed it. He just chopped right in half. I was so impressed. For a product that sounds potentially like a little wild on the surface, they were still pretty successful, right? Like they they came to the Sharks already $54,000 in sales. They were working online, like their website and then Amazon. Yeah. yeah, it feels like a novelty product and it feels like there's a bunch of people on the internet who saw that novelty product and thought, oh, that's a good gift for somebody as a joke. I'll get it for them. Uh, but as a serious product to scale, I mean... The market they're actually up against is what's called cargo shorts. Not sure if you remember cargo shorts, but essentially cargo shorts serve the same purpose as the muff waiter, which is that you can stuff your pockets full of beers uh, instead of needing to wear overalls around. So I don't know. I think it's a pretty big switching cost from cargo shorts to muff waiters. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the audience will make the switch. I was hoping cargo shorts would never come back from the dead, but they have recently. (laughs) And I'm just like really sad about it. I'm like, okay, let's pass through this. But yeah, I mean, what I think is really interesting in terms of like actually wearing them, like it is useful. I think the crowd that I really think about is that like the college crowd, the hunting crowd, your barstool sports, your pit viper crowd, like those are all the brands that I see aligning really well. And I think one area of opportunity that came to mind immediately, like we were talking about football games, like that's where their story started. Um, If they could really figure out some type of like college licensing to get a muff waiter that is for UT games or a muff waiter that's for an Alabama game. Like, I think if they could nail that, I mean, like what you wear to the game is such a whole rabbit hole of game day outfits and people do overalls. So that's where I think they could really start to like make a make a community and make an impact. It's one one of my problems with them is actually like they weren't particularly distinguishable. And I think mm-hmm. they could consider being much brighter and much louder yeah, and what's interesting is it's like a very loud brand name, you know, like it comes out as <laughs> yes, like is. very in your face and uh, it, uh, the product didn't represent that. So I think they could go much harder at that. You know, Jory, to your point, the business is actually like it's done pretty well initially, right? Like there's a bunch of things wrong with it, which are like, <laughs> you know, the unit cost is 40 bucks, which is like, ah, oh, that's just like way too much to have to spend. And knowing that they're manufacturing it in China, I'm like, oh, wow, like I, that I don't know what- me. Yeah, I thought it would be much lower than that. Maybe they just haven't bought at the scale yet that would would bring it way down. But if you actually like are like, oh, it's an $85 retail product, like customer acquisition cost is like not going to be like super cheap at that price point. It's not like a like $15, $20 thing that people might just be like, I'll just buy it. It's like, no, this is like, it's my overall money, you know, and like (laughs) I'm going to buy them off with. And so like, you know, at that price point, it doesn't leave them nearly as much space, I think, for 
the sort of marketing that they'd need to do to to make it a big thing. So I was a little worried about the margins, even though I thought they were very reasonable in their ask. You know, they only tried to value themselves at like, you know, I think like $100,000 or something like that, which is not wild in terms of the the margin that they're actually making. But they haven't layered in anything related to operating expenses. They haven't layered in anything yet related to sale, marketing, et cetera. So I think there's actually a lot of costs still to layer in that are going to bring that margin way, way, way down. Yeah, I think there's something there with, you know, producing it. If they could get to the point where they were producing it in the United States, I think they're already hitting that demographic that's like American made, homegrown, down home, homegrown. That's what I'm trying to say. They're from <laughs> Iowa. They're trying to speak to that. Yeah. So Lori, I think, was the one that brought it up in terms of like, you should be doing Instagram ads and YouTube. And yep. they had mentioned that they had uh, run one holiday campaign on Facebook ads and they sold over like $2,000 in a <laughs> single day. So that shows that like with the right advertising, you know, they could be really successful. Oh, yeah. To your point, like, where's the money for marketing? And I think this product in particular could be such a good opportunity for whether it's like affiliate or influencer, like just getting people wearing this could be huge. And I think like, especially with novelty fashion products like this, you get five to 10 mega influencers wearing a muff waiter and, you know, that does its own marketing. Yeah. I think like Instagram ads are just money for them. I mean, I think Instagram always like knows what you want or knows what you need before you need it. And I think if they are finding people who are also searching for some of those other brands that we were talking about, like have affinity towards chubbies, like they can find some like lookalike audiences there that would be really, really valuable for them. Yeah. I mean, really successful though, Jory, is a, that's a relative term. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> like, I mean, what what is the actual market for this product? My overall sense is it keeps cutting down and you actually get to a point that you're like, there's just not that many people that are actually going to buy it. And so you could be successful with that market, however big it is. But um, I don't know, it uh, it doesn't feel like it's actually going to be that successful uh, as a standalone company. Yeah, I think what's interesting is like, how do you get somebody to be like a repeat purchaser? I guess if it's for Mm -hmm. gifts, but like once you have one pair, like unless they start innovating with like new line or new colors, like how do you get somebody to be a repeat customer? You don't. Because you don't. You wear those forever to every football <laughs> game. <laughs> but seriously, though, if you like, I mean, one thought, too, is like we've been talking a lot about football, whatever, outdoor. Like, imagine you're at a Green Bay Packers game and you are just freezing yourself to death. And like muff waiters are there for you to purchase in a vending machine at a storefront. Like, I think stuff like that could be a really cool, like really finding the places where these are the most useful and having some point of sale there um, could be really interesting for them. Uh, muff waiters are, they're also pretty big. Get a vending machine with overalls <laughs> in it would be quite the thing, Leslie. But like a turnstile one, like that'd be Nothing so Nothing like cool. pulling, out, pulling out a Hondo and sticking it in a vending machine to get your overalls out. <laughs> when you're freezing at those football games, like you will do anything. But like even skiing. like Or I, hockey. Yeah, like I still see like skiing could be a huge one. Everybody's always taking like beers and stuff on the slopes. Like there's a perfect thing to wear under a ski jacket. So like I just, I think it's there. I just don't think it's really going to be like a scalable all the residents in the u.s are gonna have it yeah we saw actually in this episode all of the sharks backed out because they were like it's it's a great product we love the success that you've done um but it's just not something we want to invest a lot of money into definitely not the product for me there's no way in hell i would invest in it but uh i'm proud of these guys and i'm i like the ingenuity so 
is Muff Waiters still a company? I think they've got soul. I think they still exist. I just don't think they're like scaling like they want to. I think they probably have friends and family who love buying from them. They're getting out there a bit, but I just, I don't know. I don't think they've like taken off yet. Yeah, I don't look these things up before we do the episode because uh, I don't want to be influenced. So I have no idea. I bet they've got some social media followers and I bet they're niche within the uh, tailgate community and a bunch of people wear muff waders, but I don't think that they've, uh, they've done that well. All good guesses. Uh, so times have been a bit turbulent for the company. Um, <laughs> following the show's appearance. Too many beers. Too many too beers. Too many beers. Too many to forgetful. <laughs> too many sentences left unfinished. It looks like the Sudsy Workwear is currently doing about $1 million of revenue annually. So uh, we're not pouring out a big one for the party boys, but we are cheersing to their success. Look at them. Next up in the tank is Boho Camper Vans. And I'm really excited to talk about this one because I think you, Leslie, have some insight in that nomadic lifestyle. Whoa, um, whoa. Some <laughs> digging into the some archives. <laughs> exactly. So um, Boho Camper Vans comes to us asking for $300,000 for a 10% stake in their company. And really the premise of their pitch is they're selling freedom, right? They're purveyors of the hashtag van lifestyle. Uh, through renting and selling fully outfitted vans for life on the road. The two founders, David and Brett, they actually got the sharks up and into their vans. And clown car. <laughs> clown clown car. car. They have like a bunch of different features, solar powered electricity, you know, pull out counters, interesting showers that are located at the back of the van. But I thought it was interesting because uh, they were really trying to make sure they were catering to a broader audience here. So uh, as I teed up, Leslie, what do you think of these vans? So... My boyfriend and I had more of like a weekend camper van that we would take on the weekends. It wasn't like a full-time live-in, more just like a camp-in. Watching that renovation happened, and I cannot take credit for any of it besides painting and like grouting, but it is a lot of work. Like building inside vans takes a ton of work. Like you have these like kind of curvatures on the sides of the van. So I I mean, I think it's really smart. I that whole market blew up. We actually sold the van when we moved down to Austin because we only had one parking spot and I was like, we can't drive around a camper van. <laughs> like that can't be it. But when we sold it, like it was just it was so hot. And so I think they really hit it right at the right time frame in that 2019 before the pandemic. I really love when they were talking about really trying to standardize, like being able to manufacture and cut specific pieces like 10 walls the same size. You get the same style van and really trying to make that a bit more of a repeatable pattern. But um, I'm kind of curious, John. I mean, I know this is kind of like a life that I lived in that I was very interested in the van life for a while. So like, what's, what's your take on the camper can I, vans? Can I ask you some questions? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, first of all, uh, so you take weekend trips. When you got home on Sunday night, rate your level of happiness of not being in the van. <laughs> I mean, I, I I loved, I really did love the van. Like I've always loved camping. And so it was kind of like, it was almost like luxurious to have the van to go camping, right? Because normally you're in a tent, all that stuff. So do I think spending a couple weeks in a van driving around Hawaii sounds amazing? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, but that's also just like, I'm comfortable with that. So I think you just have to kind of like assess how you really feel about it. Because most people are like, oh my God, I would love a van. And then they get in it and they realize 
they don't love this it. This is at horrible. All. This is horrible. <laughs> I spend. I like. I what you know. I feel like. Well, first of all, I love that they're selling on aspiration. Boho camper vans is changing the way that people travel and live through one simple yet powerful word: freedom. And yes, they use the word freedom, but it's really it is just pure aspiration. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, towards all of us thinking now that I'm in my. 30s or whatever like i just feel like is this it am i just cooped up here uh for the rest of my life or can i be out on the road but i think the reality is i think most nights that you're driving a van around i feel like you're like parked in like a wendy's parking lot not like on a beautiful outlook over some vista in a national park and so i think it's great to sell an aspiration but i think the the reality is actually it's a little rougher. So I think the rental business is likely to do much better than the Super sales business. Yeah. So I think I think they've got a really interesting brand. I think this is like the perfect Instagram product. Like <laughs> yeah, everybody <it> <laughs> looks at van life on Instagram and is like, that's what I want. Mm -hmm. That is so glamorous. I want to be free until they do it. Even though it's actually horrible. Yeah, it's, it's not horrible. horrible. It's, it's horrible. horrible. It's awful. No, you have to it's sleep. Not. You sleep where you drive. It smells in there. Okay. okay. Ours had a memory foam mattress. It was honestly so comfortable. Um, <laughs> I think the things there are very real things you have to think about, like your safety, where you're parking. Like it does take a lot of planning, but there are services. I think it's called, it's either called Hip Camp. There's another one where people are literally say like, you can come park in my driveway. Like there That's are nice. those things exist that are catered towards the van lifestyle. But I think a lot of people don't do that research up front and kind of think like, oh my God, this is going to be so glamorous. I live in the van. But I don't know if you're, if you're into it, I think it's a fun thing, especially for the purchase. Like, you know, you get good use out of it for a year or two, but you're likely not going to keep it for life. I would say. You're not going to keep it. You're going to resell um, that. The secondary yeah. market on these things is going to be huge. Huge. During the pandemic, like there were some, you know, the really fully tricked out like Mercedes Sprinter vans, like oh. as much as like a house. And I'm like, I don't know about that, um, but really expensive up in the hundred thousand. So I do think it's cool that they're making it more accessible and kind of letting people test it out. But I do. I love the rental market. I think like in, in some of the cities that have national parks, if they could get, you know, five to 10 in a fleet near some of those cities, they obviously know Arizona really well. So many people are going to Arizona and kind of trying to get that business going and then maybe like reselling after a rental has been in the market for, yeah. you know, three or four years. One of my big issues with it was that I think when I see the photos of van life, uh, the van that they use is more like a Mercedes Sprinter or like, you know, like, like a VW bus or like something like that. And this was like, it's like a white cargo van, like the sketchiest mm -hmm. of all vans. And so I, I don't know, like I feel like there's something about driving around in your sketchy white cargo van that <laughs> your little white van <laughs> turned me off a little bit. I don't know if that's what I don't. If I saw somebody pull into my driveway in that van, I'd be like, oh no, you're not spending the night. Get out of here. I don't know. No couch surfing for you. <laughs> you know. Yeah. One thing I was very confused about, and I don't know if anybody figured this out, was like the the financials. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, they were talking in terms of like net sales. They came in asking for $3 million though, or a $3 million valuation. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they said they were gonna get to like 800,000 in sales next year. And you're like, oh, well, like, like that depends if that's really gross or net. It's actually hard to know. I don't know, none of the sharks seem caught up on it. So maybe they all just got it, but I, I couldn't figure it out. Yeah, there was a lot going on. This was definitely one of those episodes where 
I had to start taking notes because we started to get a lot of numbers very quickly. So like they were talking about how how much it costs to initially invest in a van. You know, you had that 20K initial investment and that takes eight months to pay back, right? They have their their fleet of five vans that are for rental. There's 12 already sold. They said that 195K net, but they were talking about overall 493,000 sales. Yeah, so it was, it was really confusing because they didn't actually get into the logistics of like what that actually equaled out into when it came to margins. Yeah, I mean, it seems like most of the sharks were like, actually, we don't believe your valuation. Like, <laughs> we're, we're not buying that. And they all kind of offered alternatives. And it was really interesting, the Barbara alternative, right? Because she basically was like, hey, I'll give you exactly what you want. But then she did this like jujitsu move where she was like, but actually, like, I'm going to give you how much money you want, but uh, I'm actually going to value you essentially at like half the valuation that you previously had, um, which was was pretty interesting, pretty savvy by her. I thought she was kind of the winner from a negotiation perspective because she made them feel like they were getting exactly what they wanted. But I think they actually got not quite what they wanted. Barbara comes in and is like, you don't need a partner. You need the cash. I believe your projections. And I thought that was also like a bold statement. Just being like, I believe you. Fine. Yeah. You know, guys, my offer is really the best offer here because it gives you exactly what you need. And in addition to that, there's nobody here that can market better than me. Oh, that's... <laughs> there is no one here that you can laugh all you want. I'm laughing. There's no one here. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally laughing. What I thought was kind of the win in terms of a shark deal, though, she was like, you know, as the business continues to expand, if you bring me on as a partner, I'm going to continue to invest and fund your growth, which we don't always see like coming out of shark deals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to understand like the terms on that ultimately. Mm -hmm. She's basically like, oh, I won't charge you any interest rate. And you're like, well, there, there must be something you <laughs> want back for that uh, in exchange for that capital to run the business. Um, Typically, I feel like if an investor is going to say that, like, oh, I'll give you money whenever you need it, like it certain like conditions have to be met and like it has to be like agreed upon, like when you'd be able to give that money or the investor, you know, the investors can just be like, well, I don't think you need it. And the operators can be like, well, I need it. Like, so I'd be interested to know what the final agreement was. Mm hmm. What makes Barbara such a good shark in my mind is that she makes you believe she's not a shark, right? She's always like very like authentic and like, yeah. I believe in you. I want you to succeed. Yeah. And I think she doesn't match the tone of a lot of the other sharks who I think are just like absolutely upfront and brutal. Um, <laughs> but in my mind, that's like she's a smart, savvy businesswoman. She plays on her strength. But she did yep. seal the deal in this case. Uh, she very bluntly was like, my offer is the best offer um, <laughs> and I'm the best marketer marketer here. Yeah. And even like Rohan was like, don't be too concerned about the debt offering that she has on the table for you. So that was really nice. That was my win of the episode just because I, I like it when sharks give kind of the unsolicited business advice when mm -hmm. there's offers on the table, because I think sometimes it can be so overwhelming for those founders, especially when numbers get thrown around. So that was my win. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like, you know, taking out debt, you know, we are all work in tech. And yeah, sometimes people take venture debt and there's good reasons for it. But, you know, for traditional businesses that actually have like some established cash flow and a set of like already existing sales metrics, like it's not that challenging to go to a bank, I think, and actually get 
a credit line for your business from a bank and be able to run your business that way. And traditionally, the reason that is such a successful model is it's literally money in, money out. And I think that's kind of what they had started to get going here. And so I kind of agree that access to credit or debt is not, like not a not a horrible path for them given the sales numbers they already had. Mm-hmm. For me, I still just like, I love when there's a charitable component. I think we've talked about this mm-hmm. a lot in terms of like when you scale and you also think about how you can like support the people that are buying from you and the whole glamping movement and the whole like making camping really like sexy if you want to call it Instagrammable. Like there's still a segment of people who like are living in vans out of necessity. And I think like that to me was the big loss there. I loved when Lori like brought up the donations to the homeless or to Cherry, whether it's like actually donating a van or finding ways to have creative housing. Um, So for me, that was really a loss. And like, I kind of feel like that was something that this culture is so, there's so much critique around van culture, specifically with homelessness and I had wished that that would like have come back into the deal. I think that's actually the right thing for them to do as a business. So I hope they just do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when it comes to, is it still a company? Van life is still very much a thing in the post-pandemic world. Uh, so too is Boho Camper Vans. So we actually got an update on Boho a season later. Their Shark Tank update package said that uh, the pandemic really did a real number on their rentals, but the Mm. sales side was full of orders. So people were less likely to rent them, but they were willing to buy them. And in 2021, they were on track to make $2 million in sales. Uh, So currently, the company very much still exists, and you can currently buy four different layouts of the vans on the company website for around 50k but that's all before you can like trick out the van right so like it just depends on how much bang you want for your bunk uh stop so it, it definitely depends on kind of the exact camper van that you're after And last up in the tank today, we've got Rumple, which is a blanket for the outdoors that is durable, weatherproof, repels pet hair, debris, and stains. The big selling factor on each Rumple is that it's created using 60 recycled plastic bottles. Kind of speaking to like the charitable component of the of the brand, they offset their carbon footprint every year, and they are giving back currently 1% of sales to environmental causes. Founder Wiley Robinson is asking for for a 4% stake in his company, which levels out to about a $15 million valuation, much to the many groans of the sharks. (laughs) Yeah. And we have guest shark Blake Mykoski, who is the founder of Tom Shoes. So it's a sleeping bag that's unzipped, I think, is pretty much (laughs) what it is, right? Just to be clear. (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. Uh, No, the Rumpel... I think the Rumpel is potentially interesting. I think kudos to Wiley for uh, really trying to make the case that blankets are desperately in need of reinvention. I didn't totally buy that. Mm. I mean, he's selling a lot of them. uh, And so I think that is like a really, really good sign that he has some product market fit. But uh, it was interesting to observe Blake be like, he went like right to the heart of the matter. He's like, all right, how many other people are doing this? And yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, 15. And he was like, ah, oh, you're so screwed. Like, this is never going to happen, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm not totally sure. Yeah. I think for me, like, my first take is I just, like, hate the name. I don't know. Mm, I, all I can think about <laughs> is, like, Rumple Mints, which is, like, a liquor. Rumple Stillskin. <laughs> Rumple. Yeah. So that was kind of, like, my first hot take on it. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think 
anybody who is environmentally conscious, who is, you know, camping and moving around, I think the one thing that I really loved about it is its ability to kind of wick different materials, yeah. whether it's like water. I mean, that's the worst part about like blankets and anything you take camping is it gets dirty. And so mm-hmm. I think that component for me was really attractive. I mean, $100 for a blanket is a lot. I would rather put that money towards like a sleeping bag because honestly, like, if you're in a cold weather environment, you really need a good sleeping bag. Yeah. On that point, by the way, with sleeping bags, just to round it out, he basically, his founder story was, I almost froze to death, but my sleeping bag <laughs> saved my life. And I realized I want a Blankets. sleeping bag that's less effective than my sleeping bag. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of ironic if you think about it, because it's like the whole thing with sleeping bags is like keeping in warmth. Like the warmest ones literally like zip up yeah. around your head like your cocoon. That's what saved there. his life. Yeah, and he's like, you know what? Blankets. Blankets. <laughs> but you know I what? Think... Cargo shorts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not going to save anyone's life there or relationship. So once the sharks started diving into this product, right? Like, so they started touching it. They started feeling it as per normal. They were like, oh, great quality. But I think once they started talking numbers, I really feel like this uh, pitch took a turn because spicy, spicy. Yeah. It got spicy real quick. I was, I was all in. I was like, I believe in this environmental message. Like, I'm gonna go look them up online after after I'm done watching this. But then they started getting into the numbers, and that was the first time that I was like, Do I actually believe Wiley and his story here? Because this this was one of those situations where I was like, is is this a founder that actually needs the sharks' help? Or is he here for clout? And then if he's here for clout, do we think that he actually believes in the mission behind his company? Or again, is it just about making money? And I feel like this was the first time in Shark Tank, like rewatching history for me, that I started to to not believe the founder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, clearly Mark Cuban did not. He mm-hmm. was like, okay. Always got- one step ahead. <laughs> well, he's got like, he's like, you got three and a half million dollars in the bank. Like, you don't need capital. Yeah. So like, why are you mm-hmm. here? And he's like, you know, he gave an answer to that, which was like, oh, like kind of a sports licensing. Answer. Wait, yep. yeah, yeah, that was the loss for me was the sports licensing line. It just came to a screeching halt right there. Yeah. And but, you know, the interesting thing is that he was like, well, what I want is he's like, I want it. I want to take debt and give a royalty out. And it was just so confusing to me because essentially he's got a product that based on the math that I did basically makes like a 5% margin, right? So if he sells it at a hundred bucks, he gets five bucks at the end of the day after all the, co- you know, mm-hmm. the cogs and sale and marketing and all that, he's got five bucks left and he's talking and negotiating with people who want to take a $10 royalty. Mm-hmm. And so that's like, that switches him from $5 to negative $5 per sale. <laughs> You are paying so like, for this product. <laughs> you know, for him. So all of a sudden you're like, okay, you're taking your only margin here. And then he's talking about taking debt as well. But, you know, taking that debt, like he doesn't need it because he's got three and a half million in the bank. And so he's basically just saying, yeah, I want access to more capital and I want to pay it back at interest. Um, but he doesn't ha- seem to have like a clear use for the money. It's like that strategy only works if you're like, it is worth it to me because for every dollar I borrow from you, I'm going to make more than the interest back like immediately by deploying that capital. Uh, So that was like pretty confusing for me, which led me to believe he was there to be on Shark Tank to raise awareness because he's ultimately 
in a fight over whether his brand will be distinguished in that market. Yep. And he's trying to be known as the number one brand. And he wanted the guy who founded Tom's to see his product. And that's yeah, that's just it. Especially because if his main source of sales right now is like Amazon and REI, where they would display the competitors' blankets as well, right? Uh, those aren't just like his channels. Um, mm-hmm. He would need to differentiate. And like, I think the as seen on Shark Tank is a, is a pretty big tag. Yeah. Yeah. I kept thinking about like, what makes this different? How can you make the brand different? Like, is there a specific niche of the outdoor lifestyle? Like, you know, you look, there's people who are using it for going surfing and all these other like more hiking. But like, I do think there has to be some level of differentiation because right when you're going into REI and you see 10 blankets that are all within like the same price range, like what is it about Rumpel that stands out or that can be- It's not its name. Not the it's name. Not its name. It's not its name. I'll tell you that. It's not fact, its, its name. Sa- it sounds wrinkled, right? I know. Like, yeah. This is going to be like Ruffled. a wrinkled blanket. Ugh. Wiley was really focused on Blake, and Blake was not willing to like take this deal on <laughs> without Damon. So ended up with an offer of $600,000 at 10%, like a, a 10% royalty and 10% equity. And Wiley, the founder, backed out. He was like, I can't take any of these deals. So walked away from Shark Tank with no offer accepted. Yeah. I mean, the none of the deals make sense. Even his original deal doesn't really make that much sense. I guess, so if he, he asked for like, what, $600,000 loan at 10% over two years. So mm-hmm. he would pay like $125,000 in interest on that. Okay, so basically... You could look at it that he was and fi- and he offered up five percent of all sports licensing, licensing. revenue, mm-hmm. which is like net new revenue to him. Maybe he couldn't get it, so maybe it's worth. That's just the cost of doing business. So, like, you know, his original offer was, or his original what he asked for, essentially was like, I'm paying one hundred and twenty six thousand dollars for exposure through Shark Tank, mm-hmm. which is actually a pretty good, pretty good cost for him. But as soon as it came into like, well, that plus ten dollars per sale for two years like that's actually that takes him negative on his margins Mm -hmm. so i think it was right that he walked away and i think that it was just for publicity (laughs) yeah i'll just end it here in terms of is it still a company um yes so rumple is actually one of the shark tank legends that did really well in the outdoors market the company did about one million dollars in sales right after their appearance. So clearly, even though they didn't end up with a deal in hand, exactly, they got their clout. The company currently does around four to $5 million in revenue, uh, which is a little down from their projections and their numbers that they had explained on the episode between like 2018 and 2020. So while the sharks were not ready to kind of cozy up to that high value of valuations, but clearly blankets are still big business. I, I learned something in my sleuthing. <laughs> okay. According to Instagram, four weeks ago, drumroll, they were officially licensed by the NFL. No. So <laughs> they got their sports licensing. <laughs> it looks like Wiley could DIY it. Uh, he got it done. They're Huge. licensed. You can get your Eagles, Rumple blanket, <laughs> oh whatever my gosh, you want. I'm happy for him. That's great. Today's episode is written and produced by Matthew Brown. If you like what you hear, or eh, 
If you hate what you hear, subscribe to the show. I mean, leave us a review if you want, tell a friend or a personal enemy about us, but honestly, hitting that subscribe or follow button is really the most helpful, favorite person of mine thing you can do. We'll see you in the tank next week for another bite. Ha, 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 ha.